0: Please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode.
1: Welcome to Board Games Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris... This is Anthony.
2: And this is Liz for Beyond Solitaire.
1: And this is episode 271, our friend's favorite games, Liz Davidson with Mage Knight. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. So Liz, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. This is exciting.
1: And out of the depths of the void,
0: Anthony returns.
2: Yeah,
0: (laughs) I'm alive. I do want to say real quick, I did get a couple of messages from uh, listeners out there that were just like, hey, I hope you're doing okay. I heard you might be sick. And I really just, I just wanted to say thank you. That was really nice. I was sick. It, in a normal time, in normal circumstances, it would have been nothing. But under current conditions and the situation that I was in, knowing that I was probably exposed to coronavirus, it was a little more stressful than usual. But I am okay. Everything's fine. Family's healthy. So I'm back. Everyone's got to keep up their stamina, so drink potions
1: now as we uh, continue through the episode. But this episode, obviously, is about our good friend Liz um, from Beyond Solitaire. Uh, she's been gracious enough to join us tonight. So, Liz, tell us a little bit about your, you know, your work in the gaming industry and your experiences, and Beyond Solitaire
2: yeah absolutely so i am a solo gamer which is why my site is called beyond solitaire i it was named just because it's like oh going beyond just playing klondike solitaire there's other solitaire games you can play and i actually started that site man back in january of 2016 i can't believe mm-hmm. it. it's been so long <laughs> but um a little bit into that i started contributing to one of the dice tower variety shows so now i um i make videos as well so i used to just blog Then I started the Beyond Solitaire channel. I started making tutorial videos. And now I'm also a reviewer for the Dice Tower. So I do solo reviews for them, as well as sort of how to solo videos and interviews on my own channel.
1: Which is pretty much what everyone's doing now, right? We're all solo gamers now.
2: Right? everybody finally got with me on this hot trend.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like I'm like this profit of gaming now because like i started table for one back in 2015 i think and then jason hopped on on like episode four and that was just me being like i have small children and i can't go out and playing solo games i want to do some content and chris was like (laughs) i don't understand this so (laughs) and then yeah like you came along and you've been part of every night's game night you know since way early on so obviously we've interacted a bunch but yeah solo gaming has it it was kind of coming into its own anyways but now (laughs) it's just like everybody's in on it (laughs) Who would have thought you could play all of these games
1: and actually enjoy them by yourselves at the table? So I guess where people tend to say that you have to have the right group to play that game, I guess we're the right groups individually.
2: (laughs) I guess the problem is, what if you don't enjoy your own company? That could be really, that could be a rough one. Yeah,
1: so. (laughs) So kind of like, Instead of hell is other people, hell is just having to play a game by yourself with yourself.
2: Hell is yourself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this isn't a problem for me. I'm awesome, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure for a lot of people out there right now, they're just like, oh. What's really fair. funny is when, when you look at your collection now and you're like, oh, I have a lot of games. And you start to realize, oh, you know what? I bought that game to play with the family. Or I bought that game to play with that game group. Like the games that you really didn't love, but you kept because it would play well with other people. And now you just look at those games with like disdain. Like I kept you and now you're worthless to me. I don't want to play you at all.
2: <laughs> yeah. I haven't bought a game on purpose that didn't have a solo mode in a while. Wow. I mean, I'll, I'll, get the, I'll get the occasional game from my classroom. Yeah, but really, if it doesn't have a solo mode, I'm not getting it at this point. It's like the only thing that will limit my uh game purchasing because I'm so I have uh, evolving tastes, which we'll discuss later. But I really am an omni gamer, I will play anything, I will try anything. So if I were open to all games that could enter my home, I would probably just live in a game box castle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Seems about right. <laughs> All right, so,
0: all right, so let's get on to what's going on with BGA. What do you have up for us, Anthony? All right, yeah, so question of the week is back, and this week I asked what I thought was a pretty fun question, um, and we got a ton of answers, so I guess people agreed. What are the top three games you would recommend to reflect your taste in board games? Uh, so these are not necessarily your individual favorites, but the three that best overall capture what you enjoy playing. Um, so they might also be your favorites. So for some people, I'm sure they were. So this was a pretty fun question. And so I guess want you guys to think about that as well, because it is something that after I asked it, I was like, wait, how would I actually answer this? <laughs> like, I don't know what I think. I had to think about it for a little bit. So a few, a few answers that we got. Eric mentioned uh, Race for the Galaxy for the engine building, Marvel Legendary for the tech building, and Bonanza for the social card game which is, you know, a nice little mix. Those are probably not his top three games of all time. Those are just like games that represent his mechanics that he likes. Friend of the show, Michael, uh, here in Pittsburgh, said Texas Showdown. So trick-taking, but with a twist. And I can agree with that one. I love that game. Uh, 1830 and Great Zimbabwe, which he actually came on the show to talk about um, back in January. We have C.T. Henry mentions uh, three relatively recent ones for him, Russian Railroads, Keyflower, and Clans of Caledonia. Um, He's a Euro gamer through and through, but this also reveals that I enjoy worker placement with lots of options, auctioning for tile placement, and variable player powers that allow you to do something special, making each game different. I think all three of those can be played online as well, so that's probably at least part of why he's getting in on those recently. Matthew mentioned Nemesis, Terraforming Mars, and Star Wars Rebellion, which I think are three very different types of games. So uh, this is a pretty good thread. If you hit up our Facebook page, you'll see there's about 30 or so responses from people. Some of them are, are nice long paragraphs talking about why they like certain games over others. Um, for me, I I broke it down into kind of three chunks. So I have my, my puzzly Euros, and I chose a Feast for Odin. Then I have my like mathy games. So I put in Leaving Earth. And for Roland rights, I put in Ganshun Clever because that last one is just it's always there. I played these a ton just because they're easy and quick solo. So I feel like those three kind of give you a good sense of what I like. Um, the trains are coming up, but they're not quite like defining yet. So what do you all think?
2: Ooh, I'm trying to think I can definitely think of two. And then it's then it's a question of what's the third so number one for me is Mage Knight. I love that game. I know it's totally cliche to be a solo gamer who loves Mage Knight, but there we are. There's a reason that it is just great. So that one. And then I would actually say probably Pax Premier. It's my favorite historical game right now. And it's such an elegant representation of a, an era and of interactions between real historical figures. And there's something about that that just really fascinates me and that captures me across a number of games that are going for the same thing. The third one, ooh, probably a deck builder. I love deck builders, and my favorite of those is Eon's End, so probably that.
0: Uh, Chris, what about you? Do you have, like, three games that would... I guess having to go back,
1: I, I would probably start off with Seven Wonders. Now, probably not for the reasons you may think. First off, I love expansions. I love games that have almost an infinite replayability and kind of, like, swap in and swap out pieces, and Seven Wonders has nearly an infinite amount of play just because of all the cards that come into play, all the expansions that come into play. And of course, tableau building, like building something from scratch, building something that's unique, building something that's me. That's my big fun moment of the game. I don't care if I win, but if I get to build something cool that really reflects me, that's definitely it. I also really like having options or having cards that do multiple different things. So Bruges probably fits that really well as far as you have this card. And it's not just four spots. It's like five or six spots based on the, the scroll on the side. But also you could build houses and, and you, could, you can actually put people in towns. So I love that multi-use kind of card effect. And then probably last off would probably be either a Dixit or a Mysterium. Just the idea of this really invocative artwork that is very unique but also open to interpretations and just having a box full of beautiful artwork is really just a wonderful time at the table. So uh, if there's some way to stick all those three together, I think you would somewhat get (laughs) me, so to speak. All right, so that's what our listeners are saying. Let's get on to the rest of the episode. Let's talk about our acquisition
0: disorders. So what do you have up for us, Anthony? All right. I just said I'm just said i not there with trains yet, but my acquisition <laughs> disorder this week is an 18xx game. So there you have it. Leonard Lonnie Orgler, um, who's actually a co-designer on Russian Railroads, which was almost one of the games I put on that for the question of the week, because that game is so like perfect for worker placement. But he does a lot of 18xx games too, and he has a new one up on Kickstarter right now called 1840 Vienna Tramways. So... I'm not going to run through what an 18xx game is because I feel like I've done that recently on the podcast, but also it's everywhere. Basically, you have stocks, you have trains, you're trading stocks, you're messing with people, you're trying to get the most money. But this one, like most of them these days, has a couple twists to it. So typically, you are just an individual who can purchase president shares in different companies and run those companies until either A, you sell them off, and hopefully someone else picks them up, or someone else buys them up from under you. In this game, you are a holding company that can operate up to three different tramway lines. So they're not trains, they're trams, which is awesome, because it's kind of a bit of a twist. And typically, when you run each you know company in an 18xx game, you will decide if you want to keep the money for the company, to use it to do stuff, or you know, pay out dividends, and people can have stocks in your companies, and you have to pay them based on how you ran it. In this one, though, you collect all the money into the holding company. And then every couple of turns, you're going to have a company round where you decide how much money to pay out to shareholders, and how much to hold back to do stuff, which will in turn impact how much your stock prices move up and everything. It's just a cool idea that I hadn't seen before. So I'm kind of excited to try that. And then the other thing it does is typically you start with like really weak trains and build up to more powerful trains throughout the game. And the old ones become obsolete and people can lose their trains, which can ultimately lead them to bankruptcy. If they're not careful, this one will start out with the most powerful trains at the beginning the diesel trains that can just go anywhere, but they will become less efficient as they get older. So they'll have just less income for you over time. It's kind of like a reverse of the, uh, the basic 18xx formula so for anybody who's like 18xx uh it's just another one of those but but for me who's played a few of them now and like them uh these twists sound really interesting so this one's on kickstarter right now and um lenny's actually done a few different kickstarters so he knows what he's doing so it, you know you'll know that it's coming and it has about 15 days left to go from recording so you have about a week and a half or so to back it uh, if you're interested and it's relatively inexpensive for an 18xx game. So if you're looking to get into one, um, worth trying. I think you can also buy some of his other stuff on here too, which is kind of cool. So that is 1840 Vienna Tramways, the 18xx game that I will play sometime in 2022 <laughs> when we're allowed to go out and interact with our friends again.
2: That is an evocative title.
0: <laughs> Tease it <laughs> Yeah, it's in your head now. Is there not a
1: uh, solo 18 X game?
0: There's a couple that have solo rules to them. They're not very good. I mean, the games are defined by the interactivity. So they work. And it's kind of a cool way to like learn it or play through it. But it's not nearly as much fun. Like The fun of it is just kind of gaming each other in the stock market. And buying and selling things at the right time. And kind of mm. knocking other people's stock prices back. You can't really simulate that very well solo.
1: Do we have a... An average weight on this
0: game? Oh, I don't know. I think these things usually end up in the three to four range. Um, I think a few the heaviest eighteen XX games are among the heaviest games on BGG, like four point five ish. This one doesn't look super heavy. It looks like basic rules with a couple twists, so probably in the three and a okay. half range. Pretty cool, but long. It'll be long. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it wasn't eighteen XX, it wouldn't be long, right? Yeah, nothing about it looks shorter than the average 18xx. We're probably four to six hours.
1: Well, I'm going to talk about another Kickstarter that's currently up that's piqued my interest. Definitely not as long as Anthony's acquisition disorder. This game is called Canvas. Layer transparent cards to create unique illustrations, a spatial puzzle game for one to five players so here is a game you could actually play solo but let's hope that you don't necessarily need to play it solo because it's probably going to be at least a year or so before it comes out so in canvas as the game mentions it uses transparent cards so think gloom or probably more recently think mystic veil so you have a sleeve clear sleeve and basically what you're doing is you're putting together a painting based upon a market that's going to have these individual art cards And each of these individual art cards are going to have a piece of art. And based upon how you sleeve these cards by purchasing these different works of art, it's going to create a complete image. So there's three separate types. You sleeve them as the game goes on. You create three pieces of artwork. You take a look at what the bonuses are at the top of the board. And the artwork itself doesn't necessarily have a particular scoring to it but each of the art that you sleeve in will have icons on the bottom. So basically, it's a little bit of contract completion. So set collection as far as like, oh, I want to score those points. I need two triangles. So in a very kind of mechanical kind of way, get the triangles into your artwork, regardless of how it looks. And then basically you score points. So a very light uh, game is concerned. But again, it's a game that has really interesting artwork. It's utilizing that transparent card system which is a lot of fun it's going to be good for families it's going to be a good filler game as far as you know most games are concerned i'm still waiting on the stretch goals for this because it's definitely one of those games that could use a lot more content in order to give you more playability since it plays up to five people and it has 60 cards i'm wondering how much replayability until you're like oh you know happy cloud, person out there, chess piece, that's always going to score 10 points. So let's see a little bit more to this, but it definitely has piqued my interest. And if you're interested in taking a look at Canvas, and you should, it's really, really evocative of like Dixit type of artwork. It'll wrap up on Wednesday, May 20th.
0: Yeah, this was this is a funny one that I, I saw it pop up, not even because it was on Kickstarter or anything, but because the designers ran a promotion but largely promoted on Reddit, I think, to give away their first game, yeah. Crypt, um, which is a game I backed originally, uh-huh. actually, and played solo, and it, it was good. They gave away like 2,500 copies wow. or something. And the funny thing about that game is I remember getting it and liking it, and then it kind of faded away a little bit. It just didn't feel like there was enough there to really hold yeah. my attention. So like, hearing you describe Canvas, I'm like, sounds like the same thing. I don't know. Not the same mechanics, just like the same like potential issue. But yeah, I mean, obviously their marketing plan worked because everybody's well aware of what they're doing. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's always the problem
1: with games as far as artwork is concerned. They tend to be a little more expensive. I mean, most games do have some sort of artwork, but unique pieces of artwork do raise the price. So I looked at this. I loved it. I was going to go back it immediately. And with all of the components, and you really do need all the components for for this to be like a full-fledged game, it's going to be $49. $49. So for what is a light filler family game, uh, maybe it takes 15, 20 minutes. Um, it's a little bit high on that end. So I'm hoping that the stretch goals pop up. I hope people, you know, take a look at it because maybe at that point it, it kind of fills in there. But again, I mean, a lot of what Kickstarter does do well is introduce board games to people who typically don't backboard games. So this is probably a good entry level game for somebody out
0: there. Liz, did you play Crypt?
2: yeah i was not delighted i mean i just thought it was really forgettable yeah frankly i mean i don't even remember what i wrote about it i remember writing a review that said i thought it was forgettable and then promptly forgetting it
0: (laughs) i just remember there being like there's a bunch of cards you roll some dice you move the dice around and that was about it and it was very it, it was like a cool idea that just didn't flesh out into a full game kind of a thing
2: yeah, I like games that really get me feeling excited. Like there's a certain feeling in a small box game that I want. If that makes sense, that kind of like, you know how you discover a new phone app and you're addicted to it real bad for a few days or something like that. I'm looking for that in my small box games. And if I don't get it, I mean, I got other games that make me feel that way. So,
0: oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's gone. It's gone quick, especially when it's small. You're like and into the closet. And you're gone. <laughs> so.
2: But uh, I actually also have a Kickstarter to talk about. And that is Final Girl from Van Ryder Games. So I did do a demo of this on my channel, uh, Beyond Solitaire. But I actually first played it at PAX in December with Mike Kelly. And he and I had such a good time playing that game. And I had a really good time when I got to play it by myself recently as well. So Final Girl is... It's, it's like a new game that runs on the hostage negotiator engine. Except that it's added a map. And what you are doing is you are the final girl in a horror movie and you are trying to save victims and eventually kill the killer. It's a killer be killed situation. And the game is going to have different settings, different killers, and then different final girls that you can play and you can kind of mix and match them but the game is so thematic and hilarious and fun like you can pull event cards and say things like what's that noise all victims move a space closer to the killer and you're like what why did you do that <laughs> you know there's a there's one card that's like you know oh the victim nearest you is now your boyfriend and you can choose to sacrifice your boyfriend for a bunch of extra time in the game and, <laughs> <laughs> was- and you know all these little touches are just delicious i really really enjoy thematically what the game is doing i have a good laugh every single time i play it and i really feel like i'm playing out a ridiculous story you know sometimes i really manage to power up and just take out the killer other times they take me out and it's really brutal but either way it's always really fun and the other thing that's pretty hilarious is that you and the killer each have a certain amount of health but your last health token, you can't see the back of it. So sometimes you can die and then flip that over and then find that you have an extra health to try to go on. Just like in a horror movie where you think somebody is dead, but then bump bump bum. No, the killer rises again to take another you know, so there's like a whole bunch of really thematic drama in the game. And that 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 campaign ends, I think May 15th. But I really personally am excited about this game.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. I, I saw an ad for this pop up and I'm not like a huge slasher movie horror type of thing. Like there's a few games. You see that big red font and just, you know, the Friday the 13th font they're using. And I'm just like, eh, but I, I guess I didn't realize it was Van Ryder. And I especially didn't realize it was the uh, hostage negotiator engine. So I'm actually much more interested now. <laughs> so.
1: All right. So that's everything for our acquisition disorders. Let's get onto the games that hit the table and hit the tablet Let's talk about our At the Tables. All right, Anthony, what do you have up for us this week?
0: All right, yeah. I actually got uh, being sick was beneficial and then I didn't feel like doing work, but I wasn't quite sick enough to not do anything. So the result is I got a few games in, um, including a few games from my shelf that I've just been meaning to play. One of which came in, I don't know if it was in the last year, beginning of this year, but it was the Isle of Cats. And this is like, We talked about this, you and I, Chris, way back when, because it is a game about cats and polyaminos, and you made fun of me a lot, because... Well, get ready for more. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm going to tell you what, this game is really good. Oh, no. So, yes. Um... Okay, so this is designed by Frank West uh, and from the City of Games. And so if you know Frank West at all, it's for the big, massive, sprawling City of Kings that he did a few years ago. So this seemed kind of like a odd departure um, moving on from that game. But what you have here is a relatively medium weight card drafting. There is card drafting, Chris, a little bit for you. All right. Um, Polyomino cat placement board game. So. What you're doing is you're trying to rescue these cats from the Isle of Cats before like this pirate king comes in or something. I don't remember the story. There's a whole bunch of story bits in the rulebook, like in between the rules, which is kind of cool. But I was just kind of trying to learn the rules. So I wasn't super on top of that. But it's like these little fantasy cats, and they they match these different types. So there's like different species or breeds of cat, uh, and they're just color-coded. But each of them is a polyomino. And so, what you're doing is you're drafting these different cards, and the cards will be um, cards that let you uh, explore the island, uh, rescue cats, find different treasures that are there, um, befriend these like mystical cats, the Oshaks, um, study ancient lessons, which are just like end game scoring conditions. And you'll draft those into your hand, and then you'll pay for the ones you want to keep. Um, so you'll you'll pay fish uh you get like 20 fish income per round so you get a bunch of fish but you need those also to get cats onto your ship you have your own personal ship board in front of you which is just all these different squares and within it there are these different rooms uh so you have like the galley and you have like the cabins and uh, you know various different places that the deck and you'll have some rats on there that you have to try to cover up because they're negative points and you will rescue the cats by playing the rescue cards and using your baskets and spending fish to lure them onto the ship and you'll place them on the ship um you'll also place some treasures on the ship and there are like little icons on the ship that you can trigger that will let you take additional extra treasures like little treasure maps if you place the right cat on top of them so the goal of the game is at the very basic level is just get a bunch of cats on your ship fill as many of those rooms as possible um you know to maximize your points and group the cats together because you get extra points for cats of the same type there in a group, like a family of cats. So if you have like eight purple cats next to each other, you get a whole bunch of points. If all your cats are split up all over the place, you get far fewer points. The lessons, however, will change the scoring mechanics of the game um, dynamically. So you have like your own private lessons that you'll play, you know, and you can play one or two or you can play like six of them, depending on how many you draft. And these will be things like keep this room empty, fill this room up, cover all the rats, don't cover any of the rats, you know, have cats all around the border of the ship, have this type of cat, have this color of cat. There's a lot of them. <laughs> the, the deck of cards is really big. There's also public lessons that you can play out. And when you play those, typically you'll choose like which cat it applies to. So it could be like two points for every type of cat on your ship. And you choose, I want red. Cause I already have five red cats. Um, and my opponent has none. So that's the kind of thing you can do. And the game plays relatively quickly. It's, I think, five rounds. You just go through this cycle of drafting and then playing your cats out. And then you see who has the most points based on your lessons and your cats and all this stuff. It is essentially just a polyomino puzzle. But the card drafting really opens it up because you have constantly changing scoring mechanics. Uh, The tiles that you pull out from this huge, massive bag of cats are always going to be a little bit different. So you maybe get the ones you want, maybe you don't. Some of them cost more than the other ones based on what side of the island they're from. Um, the solo rules on this are really fun and relatively quick and easy to learn. And it also comes with a family variant, which is like a single page of rules, which is just like really strips it down and makes it easy. And then there's even a remote version, um, which I haven't actually done, but my local store did this where you can download something and everybody can play remotely like over Zoom, which is really cool. So I think you just like draw it in or something. But this game was a lot of fun. Like I backed it on Kickstarter thinking, hey, Polyominoes, it's a puzzle. Frank West, you know, made a really good game the first time around. I've come not to expect too much from Polyomino games, even though I like them personally, because they just often just don't have quite enough meat on the bone um, to really hold my attention beyond a few plays. This one, I think does. It's really a lot of fun. So, and part of that too is there's like, six expansions or something that came with it just out of the box so there's a ton of content to cycle through that deck but this is really really good um it's a buy for me i think if you like polyomino games if you like puzzles if you like cats uh this is a really good game if you're looking for something for your family that's a little bit medium-ish um not quite as light as some of the regular family fare this might be a good one for you too so that is the isle of cats like cats needed another reason just to
1: kind of squeeze themselves anywhere they wanted to right
2: cats deserve to do whatever they like
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly i'm not even a huge cat guy like i remember backing this and being like ah, do i really want a game all about cats i don't know but <laughs> i like, i'm glad i did like, I okay.
2: have cats, and they are probably my favorite beings alive i love my cats oh. so <laughs> they've really been enjoying having me home too you'd think that you know everybody else is horrified by covid but my cats think that the earth is right again
1: (laughs) i think that's true of every pet out there now they're like i get to have you all the time
0: this is great pretty much yeah it's like all the rules are broken and like when we finally go back to work they're gonna be like this is not okay guys (laughs) what the heck i thought we had an agreement you stayed home we
1: played games it was fun yeah that's a thing how about you liz have you been playing any games recently
2: yeah, I sure have. I mean, I'm a reviewer, so I'm always playing something. Uh, I released a review on Dice Tower today of a game I'm going to do some tutorials of soon, which is Conflict of Heroes Awakening the Bear. So it's actually an older game. It's just that it's third printing now. It's from Academy. And it's just really fun, tactical World War II game. Um, I'm. It's called Conflict of Heroes, but it's about... Uh, the Germans versus the Russians in World War II. So, you know, take that how you will. But really, it's it's a very fun game where you have these like chunky chits and you you know, have tanks and hidden units and all these like fun flanking things that you can do. You can hide, you can get into cover in the woods. And, you know, um, it's just a really fun little firefight game. And what really impressed me about it is that the solo system is so good, so good. There's a solo deck that you can play with the solo missions, and it's so smart. It really makes good decisions and gives you a hard time as you play. And because you get on the card and, you know, if this, 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 you basically do the first thing that it's possible for the AI to do. I like it because it's it's kind of an introductory level experience of things like GMT flowcharts, which are scary, I think, for a lot of people. But you just flip a card, relaxedly do exactly what's on that card. It's a lot more chill of an experience. So, I mean, I've just been playing with my little dudes on a map, you know, pew pew, <laughs> having a good time.
0: <laughs> yeah, this game's awesome. Actually, I uh I got a chance to play it a couple of years ago. I think we ran into the Academy guys at Origins, maybe. And it was it was like I'm not a huge war game guy, but of that game in particular, I was just like, oh, it's like a war game for like people who don't like all the nonsense that comes with war games. Right. It's, it's more straightforward. And like you said, it's like a firefight game. It's like a full war game, but it really does a good job of just getting you into the action and the mechanics make sense. And that solo deck, it's just, that's really good. So yeah. Yeah.
2: I think what what makes it feel gamier in a good way, I think for people who aren't all war games all the time is, um, you know, you have to budget your, action points in the second edition. In the third, you basically have to roll for spent checks. So certain actions are more expensive than others. So move, probably you're going to pass your, your roll. But if you fire, you know, that's a higher value. So maybe you're, you unit you get spent. So there's a lot of timing of, Ooh, how many enemy units are spent right now? How many of my units are fresh right now? Is this a good idea? How long can I drag out this turn to get as much done as possible and not let them have the momentum. And it's a really fun kind of game of chicken.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like. I feel like I like when games like this feel more tactical and like almost push your luckish versus you need to have this grand strategy. And if you made a mistake somewhere in this grand strategy, everything's going to fall apart. And if the other opponent's grand strategy is smarter, they're going to stomp on you, which is what a lot of two player like war games end up feeling like. Uh, this one is definitely more in line with like a tactical skirmish type of game, but without being quite as limited as some of those are. So. Yeah, it's good. All
1: right. So that's everything that's hitting our table and tablets. Let's get on to the feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking to Liz and we are talking about her favorite game and other games that come along with it. Mage Knight. So Liz, I'm going to leave this up to Anthony to walk us through because this is all about
0: solo. Yeah. Yeah. Fades fades into the background. Like, no, (laughs) it's like,
2: Everyone's like a solo gamer now.
0: I yeah, well I think Chris is fighting it. I don't know. Have you played any solo games yet, Chris? Uh ooh,
1: I, I did play six weeks in. <laughs> um Spirit Island I've played solo. Spirit Island I've played solo. Okay. I do have many solo games probably in here. Like as Liz said, there's a lot of games that are solo esque or have a solo component, but I have yet to, as of now, start like popping open boxes to see if it plays solo. So, uh yeah, at some point, I think you sent me over instructions to play Arcadia Quest solo, which was interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, I want to try that out. Um Yeah, so yeah, we are talking solo to some degree, obviously, current conditions make sense. Liz, I love Mage Knight. I know for a fact I haven't played it nearly as much as you. Uh This is a game that I've played i think four times five times now and i've had to relearn it three of those times because it's like the amount of time in between each play is far enough apart but those were all solo and every time i was like man this is good so i'm not going to talk at length about it because i'm not an expert i'll let you describe why this game is your favorite ever and what it does to kind of represent you as a gamer and solo games in general
2: Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to talk to actual Mage Knight experts, there is a Mage Knight board game Facebook group, by the way, that there will be people who can answer any question that you might have better than I can answer it. Just putting that out there. But for me, I just the thing about Mage Knight that I love the most is that it's one of those games that's so open and you can choose to do. Whatever you want, and you start the game as already a fairly powerful being who just gets more and more powerful as the game goes by. I mean, it's the ultimate wish fulfillment game, right? But you're exploring, you're a mage knight, you're this person who is able to fight with your sword and with your magic, and you are kind of moving through the countryside. Depending on what mission you're playing, you'll have different goals, but. You get to choose how you want to interact with the things around you. If you want to take out rampaging enemies, do it. If you want to go to a monastery and be nice and buy things for the monks, do it. If you want to burn the monastery, do it. You know, you can hire units. You can pick up new spells. There's kind of a, like there's a light deck building aspect to it where you're picking up new cards that expand what you're able to do. Um, but what it I think what the game really comes down to is that feeling of leveling up because as you gain experience and you improve in the game, You gain levels, and that means that you pick up new skills, which are all totally sweet and make you feel awesome when you try them out for the first time in a game. You pick up new cards, which make your plays more interesting. And then, you know, you also gain power in terms of your armor and your your hand limit. So you just feel good in a sense of growth and progression throughout the game. And also, if you like multi-use cards, all of your cards can be used for the action on them, or they can be played sideways for other things. So, you know, a lot of it is looking at your hand and working out the absolute best plays possible based on what you know about what's on the board. And it's just satisfying. There's something about that game and the sense of growth in it and all of the choices that just it just does it for me. And it always does.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a funny game. Like I I bought this really early in my gaming career because... I heard it was kind of like, it's like a puzzle, little but like this, and you know, like, how do you describe Mage Knight, really? But however it was described to me, I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And it took me two or three years to finally play it. And once I finally played it, I was like, oh my gosh. And I just want to get to the point where I could just leave it out for a few weeks and just explore everything it has to offer because playing it a few times is not nearly enough. I don't think I've ever reviewed it on this podcast because I just didn't feel like I had enough of a grasp of the game to do so because there's just so much there to kind of peel apart and uncover. And it's just, yeah, at the end of the day, it is a very interesting puzzle of a game, but there's a lot more to it too.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, a puzzle doesn't quite do it justice. I mean, it's puzzly in that you can puzzle out your turn and you're thinking about how to use your cards and you're thinking about your abilities and the math of attacking a city. But it's more emotional than just a puzzle, at least for me. I get really excited by the exploration aspects of it. And, you know, I like watching my reputation go up and down as I make, you know, better and worse choices about how to treat people in the game. (laughs) (laughs) Every game is really a story. And I like that. It's the right combo of puzzle and adventure and story.
0: Yeah. So like Mage Knight is, you mentioned this before, it's kind of, If you look up like best solo games ever, most people will list this up there on the top of the list. And until very recently on Board Game Geek, this was the number one solo game, period, right? I think every year that they ran that top 100, it was number one until this year, correct?
2: That's correct. And I know it's so cliche to be a solo gamer who's in love with Mage Knight, but it's just true. I like Spirit Island, but nothing is ever going to be Mage Knight for me. I don't, I don't think. I would be really surprised if I found a game that offered me more than Mage Knight does. Um, I would be excited. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the other thing that's interesting, and one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about this is that, you know, I actually visited Dice Tower headquarters like uh, two months ago now, and I did a top 10 solo games list, and I did a top 10 historical games list. And what's interesting to me is that there was not a lot of crossover and I'm not sure how that's going to look in the next maybe two to three years, the kinds of games I like to play. It's slowly changing. My tastes are moving more towards the war gaming and historical gaming. um, World. And I don't know what that's going to mean for the games that are my current favorites now, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, it's, It's a good point too, because I think we've all been through this as gamers where, you know, I can think back to, and my favorite game of all time has been relatively the same the last two, three years, but the first like four years in the hobby, I feel like it changed every six months. And like, as I'm like exploring and learning and deciding and getting into new types of stuff. So I think it, like that evolution, I think happens to everybody. Um, But I think you, you were describing this before we started recording. In particular, like if you've always like if you're looking at fantasy games and then suddenly you're like, I'm more interested, like I'm moving towards historical (laughs) games. It's almost I wouldn't say the opposite because the mechanics can be the same, but the whole idea, like thematically between the two feels very separate, right?
2: Yeah. And I mean, if you really think about it, in some ways, it's not. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons emerged from wargaming. So, you know, things are probably a lot closer than we realize but I sometimes wonder if what's going on with me is, you know, I am I have a past in the ivory tower. You know, I got my PhD. I was going to be an academic. And I wonder if what's happening is my gaming interests and my sort of latent historian academic interests are starting to converge, if that makes sense. I, I think what's interesting to me about historical games so much right now, especially as I'm finding myself more over time as a game reviewer is that in some ways, I feel like there's more to say about a historical game because it's not just, is the game fun or not? It's, is this a good model of history? Does this represent a time period? Well, you know, what kind of statement is this making about the past? And is that an argument for something, you know, there's something a little bit more chunky when you're talking about a historical game. That's really trying to capture its era and the experiences that you're reenacting or playing through. And I think that that is something that's really calling me right now. You can't do that with God's End, (laughs) which I do love.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Pax Pamir earlier, and that was actually my favorite game of 2019. Uh, Very close with a couple of others, but that one in particular just blew me away. And part of it was the historical context and the unique theme but also like how in depth that theme is kind of integrated into the cards and what they do and who you're interacting with. Um, How would you say that game or games like it in particular kind of capture your attention in a way similar to like what a mage Knight does, like that really just make it games that you enjoy above and beyond other things.
2: Well, Pax Mirror is particularly interesting because I can't think of any other games that have that same feeling If that makes sense, it's one of those games that has, it gives me a different vibe as I'm playing it than most other games. And I had to kind of reorient myself as a player to be effective in the game. But I think what I like the most about it is that all the actions make sense if you understand the historical context. You know, this is one of those games that actually had me off reading history books about the period and really devouring the flavor text on the cards so that I would understand the relationships between Not only the people in the game, but the different elements of the game. I mean, if you could turn someone's dissertation or work of scholarship into a game, I feel like Pax Premier would be it. And I think that that's what transfixes me so much. It is a fun game to play. It's it's just good as a game. If you never care about the history, it's still fun. But it's almost like the deeper you get into it, the more you appreciate how rich it really is. And that's what keeps me coming back. I didn't just play it a few times and think I'm done. That's one of those games that I will say yes to play it pretty much any time. Let's go. Because I want to experience it again.
0: Yeah, it's so good. Uh, what would you, <laughs> just almost for myself here, like what what kind of uh, books or sources would you recommend people read if they're interested in like, what comes out of that because i found myself like reading all the flavor text and reading kind of the back of the rule book and thinking this is really interesting i didn't know anything about this like what else would you you know if people were in the same mindset where would you recommend they go
2: yeah so i actually read the main kind of overall history book that uh cole worley recommends he actually has a little bibliography at the back of his uh of his rule book but, um, Return of a King by William Dalrymple, R Y M P L E, I think, is a, it was just a very readable, fat history book. You know, you'd think it'd be really dry, but the story they ended up telling was just fascinating. And, you know, I also like this particular topic because I think it leads us to some of the issues that we're all trying to discuss in board gaming right now, but nobody's very good at it, I think. We're getting there. Which is that, you know, it's also a game about colonialism, but from a different perspective. And the thing that's interesting about the great game in particular is that it's still kind of in that era where we think of like, oh, these fun, rollicking, scholarly British people off having adventures in the East. And it's like, wait, 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 record scratch. You know, that's not how this looked to people who actually lived in Afghanistan and whose culture and country that was. And, you know, games that start to touch those issues and start to kind of poke at that tender spot in our culture and in how we understand other cultures, really, that appeals to me. Yeah, like Spirit yeah, Island tries to do it in a fantastical way, but Pax from Mirror takes something real and turns it into a game that is still very respectful of the source material.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, So what other historical games would you recommend or have you been playing that you really enjoy?
2: Well, I just came off of a review of Pendragon, the fall of Roman Britain, which I like quite a bit. Uh, That is a coin game. So if you want to go at it, get ready. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But, And I would actually say that it's on the upper end of heaviness in a game that I'm personally willing to tolerate right now. It's, It's got a lot going on. But if you, again, understand the historical context, the game starts to make more sense. Uh, It is a really cool game in that you start out with kind of these Romano-British people who actually live in Britain. And then you have the Roman military that's also stationed there. And they're frenemies. And they're kind of trying to vie for dominance while also working together. And in the meantime, you have Saxon and Scotty Raiders coming in and just wreaking havoc. And everybody is trying to control territory and have slightly different goals, plundering, solidifying if you're the Romans, maintaining roads. And all these things make so much sense in terms of the actual historical process of Roman rule breaking down in Britain. Uh, but it's also a fun game. <laughs> and I really, really love the attention that the designer, uh, Morgan uh, Gouillon-Rétis, put into it. She is really, really smart. And interesting she thinks really deep about her games and you can see it in Pendragon, dragon and you can feel it when you play and i don't know it just feels like you're playing a love letter to a historical period and that's something that really touches my heart you know um yeah. i'm actually really excited because morgan has another game that she's finishing the rule book for right now it's called hubris that's going to be set in uh the hellenistic period with mm, sort of cool post-Alexander the Great Kings vying for power. And that is going to be really good, I think. I have high expectations for it.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, actually, actually I have Pendragon on my shelf. I have not played it yet, but I I did pick it up because it just, it sounded really cool. It's a coin game. I love coin games, Uh, just the asymmetry of it. And I know that GMT stuff goes out of print real fast. So I was like, I'm going to get this and someday I'll get to it. So,
2: (laughs) get it um, so actually after playing pendragon i made a very irresponsible purchase no it was not irresponsible but it was expensive um i bought a copy of gandhi i'm actually super excited ooh, to learn yeah that one.
0: that's the other one on my shelf that's awesome <laughs> that one i'm more excited for that one though because it's like sorry go ahead
2: i was just like I can't, I can't wait to play a peaceful faction it's gonna be awesome
0: that's what i was thinking yeah it's it's a coin game which are all war games but with peaceful resistance which is of course that's what the 20th century ended up looking like but yeah yeah i know i'm really excited for that one too
2: yeah like how do you do it in a game i can't wait to find out if you want a lighter kind of historical game that is super interesting i actually love david thompson's work uh pavlov's house is fantastic as a game it's really fun it's like a rollicking good time for somebody who's holed up in a Apartment building being attacked by Nazis, but um, <laughs> it's, it's part of his you know valiant defense series. Castle Iter is in that same vein, but Pavlov's House is great because not only is the game fun, but you know David put a lot of work into researching that game. He found authentic photos from the time period of as many of the people in the game as he could. He made his own interpretive decisions about who was really in the house and what resources they had access to after reading a bunch of Russian propaganda, but also other primary sources. I mean, that's just such a neat melding of historical interpretation and game. And, you know, on Kickstarter recently, he had a campaign for uh, By Stealth and Sea, which is this just hilarious. I mean, it's kind of a lucky game, but it's so fun. You're these Italian torpedo riders trying to ride into the harbor and sink British ships and then swim off to safety. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which is a real thing. It's like the predecessor of Navy SEALs. I had no idea. You know, I played this game and it was fun. It was silly. And I ended up running away from patrol boats all the time. And I also learned a lot. And, you know, can you go wrong with that?
0: No, no, I don't think so. I, this is <laughs> like I'm looking at his uh, design credits and it is all over the place. You got this game, Pavlov's House, which sounds interesting. And then Undaunted Normandy, which I've heard good things about. And then like it's
2: amazing yeah, war
0: chest. And he co-designed Ork Olympics so
2: yes yes also he uh co-designed sniper elite the upcoming board game version of that oh really and i demoed it at pax it was real good
0: yeah i mean all of these to from one of, the ones i played all of them are good so they're just all over the place so it's kind of cool
2: yeah it's i think games that he co-designs with other people are more likely to be thematically um, something like orc olympics things that he's designing for himself he definitely veers towards historical designs uh his grandfather fought at normandy oh. so you know undaunted normandy is basically an homage to the unit that you know his grandpa fought in and you know his research is just deep in all these games even the ones that seem just like oh what a fun little tactical game like undaunted normandy there's a lot behind that that went in
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, based on what I've seen of it. Um, awesome. Well, I mean, this has been very interesting and I think very helpful too, because I think a lot of people, you know, maybe they like a certain type of game, a certain genre of game, and they don't think like, well, how do I transition that into other types of games? Or maybe they played you know, I know for myself there's certain types of games I like, and then occasionally I'll play something outside of that, and I'm like, ooh, that's really good. How do I expand beyond that one game into other areas? So it's cool to kind of hear this like journey that you've been on with other games.
2: Yeah. And it's funny to talk about them as other games, because I have a feeling that they're not going to feel other to me at all within the next six, 12 months.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just start kind of filling in the top 100 list <laughs> as you get through them.
2: Yeah.
0: Awesome. So <laughs> is there anything else we talked up front, obviously beyond solitaire? Um, you know, we know we all, we were on the, the dice tower network and, we hear you pretty often over on Every Night is Game Night with Jason. Um, are there I- anything you want to share with people? Anything you want to send people to that you've been working on lately?
2: Actually, I I need to get back on it. Teaching digital school is hard. <laughs> but I've started a set of Mage Knight playthroughs, believe it or not. I'm finally ready to contribute something to that. Although I don't think anybody can beat Ricky Royal. But he did give me his blessing for the series. <laughs> so... I. Uh... <laughs> So I've actually been playing some Mage Knight, and then you can look forward to some more uh, historical game tutorials on my channel, which is Beyond Solitaire. I'm also Beyond Solitaire pretty much everywhere on social media, and I like talking to people, so feel free.
0: Awesome! All right,
1: so that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris, this is Anthony,
2: and this is Liz. Thanks for having me,
1: and we'll save you all a seat at the table.